the gospel. I know that sounds real basic, uh, but we're going to be looking specifically at my view of the gospel, my view of the gospel, and uh, my view of the gospel changes a lot of things in my life, how I view the gospel, and I believe that uh, God has something that he wants to work in us, draw us closer to him over the next few weeks as we take a look at this. If you would join with me in prayer as we start here, that the Lord would have his way tonight, that he would lead us, that he would guide us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this opportunity and privilege we have to be here tonight, God. I thank you, Lord, that we can gather in your name, that we can worship you together, Lord. And God, I pray that you would anoint our ears to hear your voice tonight, Lord. Whatever you want to speak to us, God, I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us, strengthen us through your word, God. I believe you and trust you for what you were doing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know that no matter uh, what we say about the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, the gospel starts to work. <laughs> Amen. It's impossible to talk about the work of the gospel and something not start to happen. So I pray that as we talk about this tonight, that the Spirit of God stirs within you because the gospel is something that we all need and we should all continue in. And we're going to start out this week by looking specifically at what the gospel is. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but I, I hope to draw your attention to a few things. And as we look over the next couple of weeks, the work that it did in my life, but then also as we look ahead to what the gospel still does in my life. Because a lot of times we, uh, uh, in Christianity, Pentecost, whatever, whatever you want to say, we kind of have the gospel as this uh, one-time thing, which there is a one-time event of salvation that we experience that we call the new birth. However, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that should continue to work in my life. And we start out by looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, verses that you may have heard before. Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel... Of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, I think it's important for us, first of all, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something that I should endeavor to have in my own life, that I should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for me to not be ashamed, I should know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. I should make sure that I'm aware of the points of the gospel, so much so that I can stand up with confidence and with boldness, not in myself, but in the work of the gospel and that Jesus did. And Paul states that the gospel is the power, or it is the mighty work of God. And there is a righteousness in verse 17 that it talks about. There is a righteousness that is only revealed through the gospel. In fact, the gospel is the ultimate revelation of God's righteousness. We can see the goodness of God because of the gospel. We can see the love of God because of the gospel. There is a righteousness that comes only through the gospel and not any other way. If I want to see how good God is, I should look at the gospel. If I want to see how loving God is, I should look at the gospel. It is the greatest revelation of who God really is. That's why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And so, as we look at this, we need to understand this idea of righteousness. Because righteousness is both God's essential quality, and it's also reflected in His actions. That righteousness, goodness, justice is God's essential quality. It's who He is, and we know that because it's reflected in His actions. Men can be seen as upright. Men can be seen as having integrity or virtuous. But there is only one true standard of righteousness. Of course, we read that in Scripture that when we stack up all of our goodness next to God's, it's as nothing. We find that through the gospel that God's righteousness is revealed both in relation to who He is and also as to who we are. His righteousness is revealed that way. The righteousness of God was not hidden before the gospel. It's not that people did not see that God was a good God and a holy God and a righteous God. It wasn't that it was hidden, but it, it was revealed to some degree. But when the gospel was accomplished, more of His righteousness was revealed to us. 
Thank you. Thank you, water boy. <laughs> you see, because we, we find something in verse 17, and this is a very famous passage because it contains that end statement, the just shall live by faith. And that statement right there is what started a Protestant reformation, the just shall live by faith. And we will look at that just a little bit in coming weeks. But the words used here about the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith is a continuous proclamation that this is progressive, that there is something revealed from faith to faith. I'm just going to hold this here, making you wonder when I'm going to take a drink. But this is a cycle that Paul represents here, that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, as we begin to think about that, we understand that when we receive the gospel, there's a revelation and that there is faith involved. But this cycle starts working, that we see our, strength, uh, our faith strengthened when God reveals more of who He is to us. And then we act on that faith because James clearly says that faith without works is dead. And if you say you have faith, then show me your faith. It's by your actions. So if you believe in God, we should be able to see that you believe in God. If you believe that He's a Savior, then we should see that in your actions. If He's a healer, we should see that in your actions. That if He is the answer for the world, we should see that in our actions. Because faith without works is dead. So God reveals part of who He is to us, and then we act on that faith, which demonstrates that we have faith, which allows God to reveal more of who He is, which strengthens our faith. It's a cycle that works. In fact, we see this happening when we just look at the very basics of a new birth experience that I start out with some faith that God is able, that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. I start out with faith that God can forgive me, and so I pray for forgiveness of sins, and God forgives me, and it strengthens my faith, and I go to another step of baptism, and I feel great when I come up and God reveals that He is not just a forgiver of sins, but He can wash my sins away. And it's this progressive revelation from faith to faith. But before we get to what the gospel continues to do in my life, we need to look at what the gospel has already done in my life. And we're going to go all the way back to the start, but we're not going to go to the finish. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree in the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now this is the story of the fall of man. We're not going to rehash the story. Most of us... Uh, are aware of the story, but Satan approaches Eve and begins a discussion with her about what God has said. Something interesting to notice is that the Word of God is not questioned specifically. You see, Satan understands something in that the Word of God is forever settled in heaven. The Word cannot be changed. The Word cannot be moved. And so he does not specifically attack exactly what God has said. He begins to state it a little bit differently. But what, God, what Satan really does, when you read what he asks, he says, uh, For God doth not know that in the day that you eat of, then your eyes shall be open, you shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. He disagrees with what God says, but he cannot change what God has said because it's settled. But what he does do in Eve's mind is he puts a seed of doubt in her mind, and she begins to not necessarily question the words that were said because she knows the words that were said. But she begins to question the motivation and the goodness of God. There's a slight difference there. She begins to question not the words God said, but who God is. God had given the command to not eat of a certain tree, and He gave the consequence if the tree was eaten of, but He never gave why they couldn't eat of that particular tree. He didn't say, he didn't say why you can't. He said, Here's, here, don't eat this of this tree, and if you eat it, you're going to die. But he didn't say why they couldn't eat of it. Why that tree? What was it about that tree? Why? What? He didn't give them those reasons. He gave them the command to obey, but he never gave them the reason why they should obey. The reason they were to obey 
was because not of the command, but of who gave them the command. And because of their knowledge of Him. They were to obey what God said because God said it, and also because they knew God. Now just stick with me here a minute. Their knowledge of God was a God that was good, a God that was gracious, of a God who came and visited and communed with them, that everything that God had done unto this point, everything that God had created, He had looked at it and called it good. He had put them in a garden where everything was provided for. That's what they knew about God, and that's what God had demonstrated to Him. And they were to obey, not just because of a reason, but because of a relationship. Now, we play on this a little bit when we tell our kids, <laughs> why, why are you supposed to do it? Because I told you so. <laughs> we hope that they just believe us without a reason. Sometimes we tell our kids things and we're serious about it. I can't really tell you the reason why you should or shouldn't do this, but I'm telling you this because, and you just need to trust me on this. You need to trust me on this. I've told my kids that before, that they, they may not be old enough to understand. They may not be down the road enough yet to realize why a certain thing is important. And I say, just trust me on this. And I'm basing that upon the relationship that I have with them. I'm base, and so God tells them this, not just, uh, he's, he's not trying to do it in a roundabout way, but he's saying, because you know who I am, because of the relationship, because you look around and see everything that I have done, because of my righteousness, you should honor what I said. Sometimes we believe people, despite there not being any good reason to believe other than that, we know the person. How many times have you trusted the, someone, even though you weren't quite sure they were exactly right? I do this with my wife all the time. <laughs> I tell her that because I know she's right, even though I think she's wrong. I, I do that because I know her. I know that I'm usually wrong, and I'm not just saying that in the facetious way where I just start every argument with I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm pretty oblivious to some things, and she's generally right, and I'm like, man, I don't even know what's going on. I don't even know what's happening, and she's right, and so I say, you know what? I don't see it. I don't really believe it, but I know you're right, so I'll just go with it because I trust in who she is. I trust in, in, in I look at her track record, too. And if you look at God, his track record up until this point is pretty good. In fact, everything he's done is good. So when Satan came and he began to question Eve about what God had said, it was not really about the words God had said, because those are settled. Satan can't change what God says. He cannot change that. He cannot touch what God says. He cannot uh, uh, change those words. Around. No, but what he does is he goes to the relationship that man has with God. He got Eve to question who she knew God was. She knew that God was good, but now she wonders if he's been holding out. Because Satan says, you know what, here's the reason why. It's because he's holding out on you. There's something good he doesn't want you to have. God knows that if you eat that fruit, you'll be just like him. And so God is withholding something from you. She knew God is generous, giving everything except of one tree, but now she sees God suddenly as restrictive. She knows God is a God who looks out for their benefit, but now she wonders if he is simply protecting himself. Satan still works the same way today. Still works the same way today. Let me reiterate again that God's word is established and Satan cannot change it. The promises of God in his word and what he has spoken are settled. And you know what? I don't have to question some of these things because they are settled because they are in his word. I don't have to question whether he heals or whether he makes a way or whether he provides or whether he saves or whether he's true or whether he changes. I don't have to question those because his word is established and Satan can't change that. So what he does is he tries to change your view of the promise giver, of the promise giver. And once the fall of man occurred, this doubt, this view of God as assertive, as restrictive, a God not to be fully trusted, all of this transferred into the bloodstream of mankind. Anybody think, well, man, I don't see God as assertive, restrictive, or not to be fully trusted. And, but this has been the struggle between man and God ever since. We start to look around and we may not question God and who He is for everyone else. Because we don't want to make a blanket statement and say, well, God can't do this. God isn't this. Because that's just going a little too far. 
However, when it comes to my situation and really my relationship, we start wondering where he is in my situation. You see, we don't say that God, man, I believe that God's going to leave you and forsake you. No, that's too far. We don't say a blanket statement like that, but we begin to question our relationship with God and say, well, I think he may have left me. Where is he now in my situation? We may not be comfortable telling someone else that he's left them, but no, he starts to address our relationship. We start wondering where he is in my situation, why we feel alone. We aren't comfortable saying that he won't heal, that he won't deliver, that he's left everyone, but we start with our relationship, questioning where God is in my life. And that's what the enemy does. He wants to question your relationship. He wants you to begin to doubt God in your life and what God has said to you. And from that moment, though, from the moment of the fall, God has simply been trying to restore relationship. That's it. Everything that God has done, everything that you read about in Scripture has been to restore relationship. Now, this is important to understand because when we start looking about these things, the God who is love, who is joy, who is peace, and who is righteousness has been seeking to come into relationship with mankind who has, from that moment, had an incorrect view of who God is. You see, God's never changed from the start. God has never changed, and He hasn't quit creating good things. He hasn't quit providing, loving unconditionally. And yet man still struggles to grasp that relationship because of our view of God. God drew a family out, and then He drew a nation out. He gave them a law not to restrict them. Understand that. Everything that God has done has been to draw them into relationship to Him. And we've got to understand that the Old Testament, and we look back at it and say, man, I'm glad we don't have to do that, and I'm glad as well. But the whole reason that God gave that to them was not to restrict them and confine them, but that was to draw them into relationship, lead them back to Him. Yet every time we find the same issues coming up again and again from the garden on, trust issues, relational issues, Questioning God's goodness and His purpose for people's lives. From Cain's sacrifice when he disobeyed God because he didn't obey God's word. To Israel wanting a king to be like the surrounding nations because they couldn't trust God. To the prophets and priests coming and saying peace when destruction was clearly coming. It all comes down to a broken relationship. And it continues to this day. When people look at a life-serving Christ and think, man... They start looking at the relationship through the same eyes. How many times have you heard people say, I don't know if I can give this up. I don't know if I could do all that. Man, look at what I'd have to give up. And that is true to some degree, but the reason we look at it that way is because they view God as restrictive. The same as Eve starts looking at God. He's restrictive. He's holding out on me. And people think that if I start living for God, then I'm going to miss out on something. People think if I turn to God, then God's going it's, to, it's too hard, it's, it's, it's what I can't do. People leave church because of the bondage that God puts them in. God gave Adam one rule, one rule, and Satan convinced him that it was too restrictive. How restrictive is one rule? Now, I, I remember way, way back, a long time ago when I was youth pastor, and uh, we, we started doing our fall retreats. And, and I don't know, it didn't really, didn't really work, but I tried to give them one rule at the start because I didn't, you know, every, every youth thing you went to, it was like, man, you got to sit down and there's a three-hour meeting and you list all the rules and it's like, don't blow snot bubbles and don't, don't do this and don't. So I tried to just make that easy because I was like, man, I don't want to sit down and go over all these rules because I'm tired of going over all these rules. So I gave them one rule and I don't think it worked. Don't be stupid. That covers all kinds of stuff. Just before you do something, think, is this stupid? All right, don't do it. <laughs> but God gave Adam one rule. And Satan came and said, man, God's too restrictive. He's holding out on you. Think about that. In fact, they came to Jesus. And, and they said, all of the law, all of this stuff, all of these things that you know has is, is come from God. Can, what's the greatest commandment? What is the, what, sum up the law for us. And Jesus summed it up with love the Lord your God with all you have and love your neighbors yourself. Two statements. And yet people say living for the Lord is too restrictive. There's two rules. Everything has rules. Everything has more than two. Let me tell you, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbors yourself, and that's what Jesus said, I believe you're going to make it to heaven. Oh, well, isn't there a whole lot more? Well, Jesus said, 
It's all right there. Satan managed to take privilege and favor and the goodness and generosity of God and convince Eve of the exact opposite that God is withholding, self-absorbed, selfish, looking out for himself. We see this attitude played out again and again. When people say, how could a loving God allow? How could a loving God allow such and such to happen? Because we view God as somehow petty or tyrannical or uncaring in some way. But really, how can a loving God, when we start to look at what God has done and we see Him as restrictive and uncaring, how can a loving God in whom there is no change, no shadow of turning, and who, whom is complete love and justice, that is His essence, where there's no sin or there's no malice, how can it abide to watch a nation kill almost a million babies every year and not do something about it? He gives people a daily opportunity to turn towards Him. A daily opportunity. And we say, how can a loving God allow? How can a God of justice allow us to continue? Because he is a loving God. How can a God who never sleeps or slumbers but has his eye continually on us and, and, and watch us ignore... How, how can he, he watch us ignore him in the good, blame him in the bad and become so frustrated? I don't know how he doesn't just wipe us all out. How can a God who simply seeks to walk and commune with each individual watches we are driven by greed, power, fame, then destroy ourselves when we realize none of it changes what we feel inside? How does God do that? Since the fall of man, God has been reaching and calling to mankind. To every individual, God has reached out a hand towards Think about that. Not just in the world today, but from the fall of man, God has reached out to every single person. And we think, well, what about the tribe? Or what about the person? How are they going to be saved? But Scripture says that nature itself, that every person is going to have an opportunity in some form or fashion in whatever quiet moment they are in as they look around and see that at some point they are going to feel God pulling on their heart somehow, that God has reached for every single person. How could a loving God Yes, how could he reach for every single person? From the dispensation of innocence to conscience to human government to promise to law and now grace, God has been reaching for man throughout every single generation. And the reaching, the endeavoring to reestablish relationship, we find that it culminates and it reaches the pinnacle with the gospel. With the gospel. God who has tried all these ways. He has allowed man to be in the garden in innocence. And that hasn't worked. He's allowed human conscience to guide itself. And that led to Noah and the ark. And the destruction of the world. To human government. To the promise. To the law. And now grace. He had tried all of these different ways to reach man. And it was not the fault of God. Neither was it the fault of the method. God is not using incorrect methods. And this is where our view of God comes in. Because when we look back, we can see God and His plans is failing. However, they did not fail because of God. The law did not fail because of God. The Garden of Eden was not a mess up because of God. Hebrews chapter 3 and 13, the writer of Hebrews explains what takes place. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, this is the danger and this is the start. This is what sin did and still does in our life today. It seeks this one thing. It seeks simply to harden your heart. That's all sin is trying to do, is to harden your heart. This is what happened to Pharaoh after every plague was over. And, and we wonder at that and think, man, he said he's going to let the people go. And then his heart gets hardened and, 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 and nothing happens. How, how could he see those miracles and his heart still be hardened every single time? And then I stop and look at my own life. Because I start to look at how many times God has come down and worked. That God has come down and done a miracle or provided or made a way some way or, 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 or done something. And I know it was only God. And then God speaks to me one more time and I begin to question who God is. A circumstance happens and I begin to question what happens. But see, sin has tried to harden my heart and it still looks to harden your heart. It's the deceitfulness of sin. 
And the writer of Hebrews tells us to encourage and strengthen one another daily so that this hardness does not begin to creep into the hearts of believers again. That's why your testimony is so important. That's why your encouragement as the body of Christ is so important because that keeps our hearts tender. It keeps us soft. It helps us to remember who God is and His relationship with me because if I don't, my heart gets hard. And that's all sin is trying to do. This is what every temptation is trying to accomplish in your life. It's trying to harden your heart some way. Every trial that the enemy uses in your life, every situation that he tries to turn for evil, the only thing that it is trying to do is to harden your heart. And it's to harden it in that relationship that you have with God. Hardening of your heart. Because Satan knows if he can get the heart, then he's attacked the relationship. And if he can sow doubt in the relationship, he can then make you doubt God's word. If suddenly I lose view of who God is, then suddenly his words don't mean anything. You see, that's what we do. If suddenly, uh, you know, it's it's a dangerous thing, the internet. uh, I didn't know if you knew that. Uh, Sometimes, you know, there's there's places like uh, quote.com, I don't know, just type in quotes. And there's quotation things that come up. And you're like, man, I'll find a good quote on... Who knows what? You type it in. And and there's some good quotes on there. There's some good quotes. But uh, you you better be careful. You better be careful. You better... uh, This happened to me one time, and and, uh, it was a really good quote. I thought, man, that's a great quote. I'm going to put that in there. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do real quick is just Google the the author of that quote. That person was a nutcase. They were a nut. I did use the quote, but I prefaced the quote by saying, this person's a nut. This is the only good thing they've said in their life. (laughs) But when we find out that someone's a nutcase, you know what we do? We go back and we invalidate all they've said, even if it was good or not. That's what we do. I mean, and and I'm not making any statement about uh, society right now. Uh, and, and, And we've seen our society change where people are torn down in an instant. That's the culture we live in. If you do something that is judged to be wrong, whether it's really wrong or not, you are torn down in an instant. And everything that you did before goes with it. Whatever you did before, whether it was good, whether it was bad, it gets torn down because when you get torn down, everything else associated with you gets torn down. And in the same way, when we begin to question our relationship with God, the enemy knows if we can begin to question that relationship we have and that knowledge of who God is, then all of a sudden he can make us doubt God's word as well. That suddenly when I say, I don't know about God, suddenly I start to think he has left me, that he can't accomplish what he said he would do. But this is what the gospel addresses. This right here. You see, all of this is to show what the gospel has done. You see, the gospel is not a one-time event that we look at. The gospel is not just something that affects us in a moment, and it's a great moment when the gospel fully comes into our life. It's a moment that we don't forget that people write down in their Bibles the day they were baptized and got the Holy Ghost or repented. These are wonderful, pivotal moments in our life, and they should be, but that is not all that the gospel addresses. You see, the gospel is also about the law and fulfilling the requirements of the law. You see, because all of us were born under the law, but I'm thankful that I am not uh, subject to the law anymore because if I was, I'd be in trouble. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10 says, by the, which we will, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of a body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That the gospel and the cross is about Jesus Christ accomplishing and fulfilling the requirements of the law so I don't have to. You see, the gospel, this is what Jesus did for me. It's not just about salvation, which is important, but he paid the price for me that the law required for me. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That we need to understand that without the gospel that you and I are living under a curse, that there is something hanging over us that we can't deal with it. And Jesus Christ not only took away the curse, but he made, he was made the curse for you. That he erased that once and for all. We know in the Old Testament it was just rolled over every year. But because he became the curse for us, it's completely erased. I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not hanging over my head because he has redeemed us from the curse of that law. 
The gospel is a powerful thing that happened in my life. That it, Yes, it was me coming to an altar. Yes, it was me feeling God. And, and I didn't understand at the moment all that the gospel was doing in that exact moment. It addresses my debt that I owe that I can never repay. That's what the gospel does. It addresses the debt I owed that I can never repay. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And he gave his life a ransom. For many. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, for you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, there was a debt that I owed. And see, I don't know if you remember, but I, I remember when I came to an altar, that really wasn't in the forefront of my mind. I knew I needed God. I didn't come to the altar saying, oh, there's a debt that I owe, because I didn't even realize at that moment there was something that I owed. But the gospel in that moment, it not only saved me, but in that moment, because of the gospel, everything that I owed, everything that should have come my way, Jesus Christ paid all of it through the gospel. And I didn't, have to, I didn't even know about it, but it was already taken care of before I even realized it, that the debt was paid, the price was paid. It addresses the bondage I could not get out of on my own. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. See, the gospel did something in my life too. The gospel, if it's working in my life the way it needs to, breaks bondage. Specifically in this verse, it says it breaks fear. Now, see, this is why I need the gospel to keep working because there's moments when I begin to deal with these things again. But it tells me when I received the gospel, the gospel work was about salvation, but it broke the bondage in my life, that it broke chains, that it broke things that helped me. You see, this is why, well, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You see, what this world needs is the gospel. What people in this community need is the gospel. That's what they need because there's fear, there's bondage, there's all of these things. And what they really need is the power of Jesus Christ, the power of the gospel to affect them. And I'm all for all sorts of other things helping people, but we can never forget that ultimately what people need is to fall to their needs and have a gospel experience because that's the only way that bondage can be broken in somebody's life. You know, that's why AA isn't incorrect on some level. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. You know what? I agree, unless you have the power of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only thing that can break the bondage. You may have will that will keep you, but you know what? Without Jesus Christ, you're going to stay in your sins. You're going to stay in your bondage. But when I have a gospel experience, that's what breaks the bondage in my life. So I don't have to be an addict. That I don't have to be depressed. That I don't have to have fear gripping my life because of the gospel. This is what the gospel has done in my life. It has broken the bondage in my life. And Paul says many times, I hope that you don't return to the bondage. You see, that's the danger, is that what Christ has done through his work and what the gospel has done in my life, all of a sudden I begin to return to these things. You see, because Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, that his righteousness is revealed from grace, from faith to faith, sorry. And that there is a progression, yet sometimes I see people regressing. That while they should be getting freer and freer, closer and closer to God, they return to the bondage they were in. Because there is a choice. There is a choice. The gospel is about all these things, but it is ultimately, it's about breaking the bondage in my life. It's about paying a debt, a debt that I, did not, I could not ever repay. It's, it's about fulfilling the requirements of the law. But it's ultimately, though, the purpose of the gospel is to restore that initial relationship man and God had. 
Since Genesis chapter 3, that's all God has been trying to do to mankind is restore that relationship. Heaven is about salvation. It's about saving us out of a sinful world. But it is also about God wanting to have an eternal relationship with you. Think about that because so many times, and I don't disagree, man, we should talk about heaven, what a great place it's going to be and the wonders there. But the reason for it is not just so that you can have a mansion and walk on a street of gold and no more tears and no more sorrow, which is wonderful. But it's because God wants to have an eternal relationship with you. He cares enough about you and so much about you that he wants to spend eternity with you. You were created for that. And this is what Paul is referring to in Romans When he talks about the righteousness of God being revealed to us by the gospel. You see, because the gospel is about revealing to us God's love again. His love. A verse I'm sure almost anyone can quote. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world, and he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what the gospel is is that God had tried so many things and man had rejected. He tried to let them do their own thing. He tried to let them use their conscience. He had allowed human government. He had set up a law so that it would lead back to him. And every single time, man rejected the way that God had made. Every time. Rejection, rejection, rejection. And all God wanted was a relationship. And so, at the very last, he decides to give his only son. His love was so great that he decided, I'm going to give everything that I have. And he did it for you and I to have a relationship. The reason that Jesus died on a cross was for you to have a relationship. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we did not care about God, while we were far from God, God demonstrated his love towards you and I. How much he wanted to be in a relationship with people that didn't care about God, that were full of sin, that were full of depravity, and yet he wanted a relationship so bad that he sent his son to die for you and I. That's how bad God wants to be in relationship with you. You see, it's important how we view the gospel. Yes, it's about my salvation, but really it's about his relationship with me. You see, it's possible for us to read scripture. It's possible for us to read the Bible. And even if we've been in church for years and years, and even though we've heard things, we can still somehow take the Bible message and take what Jesus did and turn all of the attention back on us. Yes, Jesus Christ died for you. But he died for you so that you can have relationship with him. You see, this is really all about Jesus Christ. This is really all about God. And I'm thankful that I'm saved. I'm thankful for all the blessings that he provides me. I'm thankful for all the things that come with the gospel. But really, what Jesus Christ and his sacrifice did was create a relationship between me and God. Again. When I come to an altar of repentance, I experience what Paul describes, a revelation of his righteousness. When I get baptized, I experience even more of what Paul describes, a revelation of his righteousness. Not that I am forgiven, but my sins are also remitted and his name is applied to my life. And when I receive the Holy Ghost, I experience what Paul states, a revelation of his righteousness. From faith to faith, I keep growing and understanding and learning more of who God is. And the more I learn of who God is, the more established his words become in my life. You see, here's the danger, and we'll start looking at this in later weeks, is it's not, it's really hard to just obey without a relationship. It's really hard. It's really hard to do what this book says when you don't have the why or a relationship. To just open it and say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That when people uh, mock you and and do things and, and you go to work and, man, everyone's on your case. It's really hard to just be kind to people when you don't have a relationship. Why am I kind to that person? Because the Bible says that's that's a rough life. Why am I kind to him? Because of my relationship. That's why. 
That's why. You see, my view of the gospel is important. When I receive the Holy Ghost, I experience a revelation of His righteousness. The gospel is about my salvation, yes, but it should also restore and renew my relationship with God. It is possible to be saved and not have a relationship. It is possible to go through a new birth experience and then not have a relationship. But the point of the gospel is a relationship. If he loved me enough to die for me, set me free from bondage, break the yoke of sin and wipe my slate clean, then that should be enough to establish my relationship with him. I close reading from Ephesians chapter 3, several verses. Paul writes to the Ephesian church in verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with his might by his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, According to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Paul makes a statement that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. You see, that's what this relationship is rooted and grounded in, is love. For God so loved the world. The gospel is rooted and grounded in love. The reason Christ came to this earth, was sent to this earth, is because of love. Make no mistake. The reason that you are set free from the bondage you were in is because of love. The reason the debt was paid was because of love. The reason that he fulfilled the requirements of the law by going to a cross and becoming a curse for you is because of love. And he tells them now. You see, the question is not whether God loves me. That's never been the question. It was never the question in the garden, although Satan convinced Eve that God didn't really have her best interests in heart. She questioned who he was. And God has been trying to fix our view of that relationship. And he does it through the gospel that now it's not him that has the love issue. But he says that ye, the church, being rooted and grounded in love. That your walk with God has to be rooted and grounded in love. In that relationship that Jesus Christ wants with you. That's the grounding thing in my life. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, and depth, and height. See, this verse changes for me when I start thinking of it in terms of love and what he's done for me. Because you know what life will do to me? Do you know what circumstances will do to me? They will take me to the edges. They'll take me to the depths. It'll take me to the heights. Breadth, length, depth, and height. Life will take you to every one of those places. You'll be on the mountaintop. You'll be in the valley of the shadow of death. You'll look in front of you. You don't see him. You'll look behind. He's not there. To the left, to the right, he's not there. And what is it that keeps you in that moment? It's a relationship. It's a relationship. It's that I know who God is. Suddenly, I'm root, if I'm rooted and grounded in love, in that relationship, all of a sudden I'll be able to comprehend that His love reaches to the deepest of depths. And when I'm in the pits of despair, God is still there because I know who He is. When I'm on the highest of highs and things are going great, I know that God is there. When I go as far out to the sides as I can, I know because not just because His Word says it, but because I know who God is. And yes, this just clarifies and puts an imprint on what I know about God. But if I don't know who God is, then these words won't have any effect. That's why when I come to some situations and I hear words and people saying, you know, all of a sudden these words can become hollow. You ever had someone tell you something and you know it's true and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know he'll never leave me or forsake me, but you don't know me. You don't know my situation. 
I've heard these words repeated to me and they've sounded hollow. And you know what the problem was? It was never the words. They're settled. It was the relationship. I was at the ends. I was at a high. I was at a low. And somehow I had lost my comprehension that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. I lost my comprehension of God's relationship with me. I lost my identity of who Jesus Christ was. To know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge. How, how did people walk into a doctor's office and get floored by the results? And then walk into church and lift their hands? How do circumstances hit someone's life that shakes them to the core? And they can bow their knee and worship. How does Job lose everything? He falls down and worships God. How does he do that? Is it, is it just because of the words? That's part of it. But no, to know the love of Christ. To know that relationship that I'm rooted and grounded in who he is. And that's what passes all my knowledge. Understand, knowledge doesn't pass knowledge. If these words are just knowledge with no relationship, your knowledge won't outrun knowledge. That's why if there's nothing backing up these words, I'm just quoting knowledge to knowledge. But there has to be a relationship behind that that makes it past the knowledge that I might be filled with all the fullness of God. When I'm rooted in that relationship, which comes because of the gospel. When I begin to see the fullness of God's love because of the gospel, it strengthens that relationship. That's why the longer I live for God, my relationship should grow and strengthen as I see more of Him. And the more I see of Him, the greater my faith becomes in Him. And the more I want to do for Him. And the more I do for Him, the more God reveals to me and the greater my faith becomes. And notice... Here's a verse that we've heard numerous times. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Now there's a power of the Holy Ghost that works in us. There's a power that works in us that is greater than anything. It's supernatural. But I wonder in the context of this verse... In the context of this passage, as Paul writes, because we can pull that verse out and man, we can just go with that exceedingly abundantly above all that we can. Have. It's impossible to go exceedingly abundantly and God can do the impossible. And I believe that. But he said it in context of a relationship. He said, now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. I wonder how much of that exceedingly abundantly rests on my relationship with God. Which passes knowledge to know the love of Christ. It passes knowledge that you might be filled with the fullness of God. I wonder if how much of that is equated to a relationship. That all of a sudden the reason why I'm not seeing God do what I want to do is because it's not a God issue. It's, not a, it's, it's, it's a love issue. It's a relationship issue. That yes, I've got the Holy Ghost. Yes, I have that. But suddenly I haven't allowed God to get that which he really wanted in the first place, which was a relationship. That I'm just going through the motions. That I'm just going through the obligations. and all. The, there's no real relationship there. In fact, we find a sobering verse as Jesus relates in the last days when he calls people to judgment. That there's people that show up before God. And they say, Lord, Lord. We prophesied in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We did wondrous things, miracles in your name. And Jesus says, I don't know you. They believed that he was a healer, but they didn't know the healer. They believed that he was a way maker, but they didn't know the way maker. 
I wonder how much rests on you and I changing our view of the gospel, that this is not just a list of things to accomplish, that these are not just words to be obeyed, but, and that is true, but there is something deeper that God is seeking a relationship with you and I. And I wonder how many of our struggles and how many of our trials and how many of our things we deal with, it's not just a relationship issue, that if we knew who God was and the enemy suddenly starts to lose its hold in our life, that the doubts and the fears and the anxieties, it's, it's not because we don't know the words, it's maybe we need to know the promise giver a little bit more. I'm praying that God leads me into a closer relationship with him. I've got enough knowledge. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've got enough knowledge to keep you. You know enough verses to keep you. I wonder if it's not just a knowledge issue, but no, I need to know them. him in the fullness of his love. I've got to comprehend him. I've got to get to the depths of this relationship with God as we search out who he is. And then I might begin to see exceedingly abundantly above all that I could ask or think as we stay in this evening. My view of the gospel is very important. How I see the gospel. That yes, it's something to be obeyed. Yes, it's something that I must do as they ask Peter, what must we do to be saved? Yes, that is important. But if I accomplish the works without the relationship, I've missed the entire point of the gospel. That the reason God saved me is to have a relationship. And if I don't have the relationship that I need to have, then am I missing the reason why God sent the gospel to my life? That he shined a light down into my life. That I was in darkness and he shined a light into my life. And that was to draw me closer to relationship with him. I wonder if we could pray right now. And let's pray, Lord, I ask you to open my eyes to see, Lord, am I, am I misusing the gospel in my life? Or have I walked fully into the relationship that you have for me, God? Lord, that you are calling me to see the depths of your love, Lord. That it's your love that roots and grounds me, Lord. That when the words of the enemy, when trials and circumstance come, yes, your words are important. Yes, your words are something that I need. But it's founded in a relationship with you, God. That I have to get back to what the gospel is about. And that's a relationship with you, God. That I have to talk with you. That I have to commune with you. That I have to know what you're thinking, God. That I have to have your mind. This is all what a relationship entails, Lord. I pray that you would open my eyes, Lord. That you would touch my mind, Lord. That you would put a fresh desire inside of me to know you greater, to know you more, God. Lord, because I know when I get to understand who you are, Lord, that you will keep me, Lord, through every storm, through every trial, through every circumstance, God, because of the relationship that we have. Oh, I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, why don't we thank him for the gospel which he has shed abroad in our hearts that he has allowed to come into our life, that he looked down and he's cared enough about you and I to reach down and speak to your heart because he spoke to my heart one time and it was his love that reached out for me. It was his love that reached out an arm for me that encompassed me round about. It was his love that pulled me out of a pit. It was his love that pulled me out of sin and darkness that paid the price. It was because of the love of Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for your love and for your power, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for everything that you went through, Lord, that you pulled me out of bondage and darkness, God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice that you paid the price, Lord. Oh, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. As we establish that the gospel is about love, that it's about a relationship, that's important because my walk with God is about obedience, but it's about a relationship too. It's not a great relationship if I don't ever obey, but it's more than just about obedience. It is about relationship. And ultimately, my view of the gospel affects how I treat God and it affects how I treat others. It affects how I treat others. It's more than a three-step process. The gospel is important in our life. And we've been called to receive the gospel and to now share the gospel. So I've got to understand what it is. Amen. Thank you for being here in service tonight. Thank you for worshiping the Lord. Thank you for responding to God tonight. Amen. I pray that you would uh, go this week sharing the gospel with somebody, telling them that Jesus loves them. That is the key thing. Amen. You're dismissed tonight in Jesus' name.